welcome to Vista Talks, interesting discussions with interesting people from all around the world. I'm your host for today, uh, Priscilla Charles, and I'm delighted to be joined in studio by two very special guests today, uh, Cal Hegarty, Managing Director at TSL Marketing and author of uh, Amazon's hit book called The Accidental Business Nomad, a survival guide for working across a shrinking planet. So welcome, Kyle. Good luck. Thank you so much. And uh, Michael J. Ask with Thumb Vistatech, our very own Michael. Um, so both Michael and Kyle uh, met by accident as global business nomads during, uh, well, during the pandemic, with a slightly skewed commonality of working closely with Asia-based organizations uh, for the better part of uh, over a decade. Uh, so Kyle, obviously from the perspective of an expat, and Michael having the experience of working uh, in the USA for Asia-based um, service solution providers. Uh, so um, those providers who would want to grow their business, for instance, helping USA-based international to globalize their business, uh, product services, and associated content. So without further ado, I'm going to uh, start um, with Kyle and ask you a few questions to get to know you a little better. And for our audience who wouldn't be familiar with you, uh, can you share a little bit about your background maybe? Uh, I understand you study international relations and economics. But how did you come to be so focused on helping people work globally? How did I become focused on helping people work globally? Uh, it was entirely selfish. That sounds like such a, <laughs> such a positive question. I, I was my own first client. So I moved over to Asia, to Singapore 15 years ago, almost, almost to this month, actually. Uh, mm -hmm. And set up, started hiring people. I was setting up a business, a marketing agency. I was hiring people around Singapore and the region, and I was managing people the way I was used to managing people. I hired them the way I was used to. I handled clients the way I was used to. And all three of those things didn't really work. And I had to do some very quick and expensive soul searching to figure out what was going wrong. And yeah. More often than not, it came back that it was a culture gap. Culture. There was mm -hmm. an issue from a culture perspective, and we're, uh, we can dig into that. But uh, over the years, as I researched it, uh, used myself as really the, my own first test case, uh, I began realizing that everybody else was going through very similar problems. So you know, you talk to any expat who's yeah. been outside of wherever country they've been living from uh, for more than a week or so, and the heads all start nodding, and they've got this same challenge, the same thing. It's hard to put your head around. You're hard, hard to define because a lot of it's invisible and difficult. Of course. And it, it seemed to me that there was two, two things, quite frankly. One was, uh, you're Europeans, one, there was a, uh, a a business opportunity, quite frankly, if, you know, business is about finding gaps that you problems you can solve. Um, and, and it seemed like because everybody else was going through this problem, there was an opportunity there, but two, it, you know, what, what a great type of way to pivot a career to actually do something I think positive and, and helpful. I've got nothing against my, my marketing agency and the work that I was doing, but you know, you, you talk about the things that get me up in the morning and get me excited about stuff. And, I love this topic and I love the communication stuff so much more than some of the other things that I was doing. So it just, it does feel like more energizing and, and exciting to be able to help companies and people to figure Absolutely. this stuff out, Yeah, especially in this day and age. I mean, there's so much need for it. 
Of course, yeah, that's not necessarily something that um, that everybody understands right away and that needs time and you need to have someone who can understand and to be in someone else's shoes and um, living this. Yeah, Absolutely. so again, I, I, uh, I did not step into this uh, with any good intentions. It was purely selfish. Like, I just want to be clear, I, I'm very selfish. <laughs> it's for, it's, I'm sure everyone is grateful. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Kyle. Uh, so then moving on to your uh, um, professional journey, you took on different roles um, and, and, and then you with several organizations before joining TSL Global Sales, right? And uh, marketing department in 2001. And now, as we mentioned, you're the managing director uh, of TSL uh, Marketing and you help companies expand and develop their footprint in Asia and uh, Pacific markets. So can you tell us a little bit about the organization maybe and uh, and uh, I understand so you're based out of Singapore. That's where yeah. you are now. Still here. Yeah, been here okay. um, in, in lockdown. I, I can't really leave if I wanted to. Um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm here in Singapore and I've been here for really, really planted the flag here uh, 15 years ago. And it, it was a great part of the region to establish a business. It's, um, it's safe, it's organized, it's business friendly. It does have downsides we can talk about, but uh, it, it, it's a great place to use as a launching pad for the rest of Southeast Asia and elsewhere. Uh, so yeah, I, I think I, I, I chose well. Uh, and this was in 2005, 2006. And I, I was in my, what, late 20s or so. And I had friends, you know, they were starting to buy their first houses. And so they'd buy a house in 2006. And I took all my money and kind of went to Asia. And, and I, from a long-term <laughs> perspective, uh, the I got lucky on that one. I, I think I made yeah, the, the, bu the bubble burst. Yeah, the, the bubble burst uh, soon yeah. afterwards. Uh, so I got lucky on that one. But what our initial plan was, was that I was to take the marketing agency that I was a part of in Boston and out of the United States, which, which basically helped other companies fill their pipelines. So we did B2B marketing for other companies. And the plan was essentially can we just replicate that and do it in Asia? I started telling my clients in the US that that's exactly what we could do. Uh, I think I actually said, oh, no, I, I was like, yeah, we're doing it. And I kind of got ahead of myself on that one. But um, very quickly, companies, clients just said, yeah, if you can, if you can do this, uh, we, we're in. And so I got on a plane. It's, it's a little bit of an unusual startup story because I, had a, I, I got on a plane with a handful of signed contracts and landing on the other side of the planet, having to figure out how to deliver on this stuff. And well, that's, to, that's kind of where the book starts, which is like, okay, I've way over promised this thing that I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> now, how am I going to do this? And so that's kind of where, where the, the adventure for me at least begins. Um, what quickly, what I found was, companies that all thought they wanted to do some global campaigns from a marketing perspective quickly realized that that was more complicated than they expected. There was not a universal standardized approach that was going to work. So basically what I did was we, you know, what we did was we said, okay, let's, let's bring our model over and do it in Asia. And all of our clients were saying, yeah, we're going to do our services, our products over in Asia. And it's essentially was a bunch of Westerners rushing over to the other side of the planet 
trying to do things the way we were used to doing it. Mm-hmm. I screwed it up. They screwed it up. I got paid to help them screw it up. I mean, it was, it was definitely a screw up. And, and, I, and I deliberately wrote, I hopefully, honestly, and, and you know, uh, uh, well, yeah, hopefully it's an honest account of, you know, the mistakes that get made, because I think it's really important to talk about the mistakes so that they don't get repeated. Absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. It's really important. Uh, it's a learning curve, really, for anyone who starts. Yes. And what I'm trying to do, at, you know, I'm trying to just shorten that. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's it's interesting to hear you you speak, you know, specifically about um, kind of getting off the plane and and kind of it sounds like you know the the culture shock uh, of it all. You know, I I remember my my trip to uh, Beijing for the first time and just that culture shock or or um, being in, in Mumbai. You know, I think um, Asia is just such a interesting place in that in that regard. So I think it's really cool that you know um, you were able to kind of account or think back to, to how everything kind of got started and, and kind of take, you know, the reader through um, the book that way. So I think that that's uh, extremely helpful. I hope you don't mind. I, I want to kind of just shift gears a little bit. Um, I, I kind of had a kind of a, a personal interest question, um, you know, more, uh, I, I know that you mentioned specifically in your profile about utilizing Sandler sales methodologies uh, specifically, you know, at, um, at your marketing group. And I'm just kind of curious, you know, how, um, and, and you know, there's all these things about, you know, uh, global sales or enterprise sales and, um, and, and, you know, uh, also about the 70, 30, you know, kind of talking thing, which, which I always, um, uh, have a little bit of a problem with. I always talk too much. So, uh, yeah, I just wanted, I wanted to see if you could kind of tell us a little bit about that kind of consultative selling that it seems like you were doing because it sounds like for sure you were you were um, kind of doing that with your client when you kind of got off the plane and um, I think it's you know I think that takes a um, a lot of courage for sure. So I, th- I think you know for, for my, my first sales job was a cold calling job and trying to just kind of figure out how to sell stuff to people to strangers over <laughs> the phone and that was back in 2001. Um, what I realized relatively quickly, I won't go into the details now, but I realized very quickly that you, uh, the harder you do a sales pitch, the harder pushback you get. And so therefore, you've got to actually take the opposite tact, which is you can't sell anything, right? I mean, you've got, and that's what that 30-70 split that you were talking about was. You've got to flip the script so that you're asking the questions, get the prospect talking let them take the lead or let them feel like they're taking the lead and have it be much more comfortable that way. I didn't know any of this. I kind of just started figuring that out. And then I met the Sandler guys here in Singapore uh, early on. And I put all of my guys through that program because I felt like, I felt like the Sandler philosophy was, was very clearly aligned to my sales philosophy, which was, the best salespeople are really not salespeople or, or they're certainly right. not selling any, you know, they're not going through the sales thing. Sandler's good because I think it's a methodology that embraces that, but it's still a methodology. And yes. I think that what I also realized was that it's especially helpful across Southeast Asia, uh, anywhere in the world, I, sales in general, people are pretty bad at, uh, especially when you talk about enterprise level stuff. Uh, most people aren't trained. There's no colleges, universities that train this. Yeah. So 
people have these assumptions and these negative connotations of sales. There's a whole demand and need for, for better salespeople and sales training. Um, and especially across Southeast Asia, because there's higher, there's more hierarchies and people generally look down on salespeople in these mm -hmm. markets. Yeah. And the expectation is if you were in sales, you show up to my office, you tell me what you've got and I'll tell you if I'm going to buy it. And I'm yeah. certainly going to beat you up on price. And that's the traditional relationship. And yeah. so the opportunities to break that are, and that's, this still happens today. So this yeah. is not like, this is not Hasn't gone uh, away. a past problem. This is happening today. So the individuals and the companies that can figure out how to flip that, I think, well, they, I know they have a much bigger advantage. Uh, now, what gets interesting, I, I, I got, I drank the Kool-Aid. So I'm, I still am to this day a big Sandler fan. Uh, yeah. I ended up partnering with them and got involved. I actually do, I, I train, I, I'm, I'm certified under that, that program. Um, what I found was the way Sandler was conceived, it's a US conceived model. Yeah. And I brings with it certain cultural assumptions. It assumes mm -hmm. certain communication styles. It mm -hmm. assumes you can be direct with people. Mm -hmm. It assumes that hierarchies are generally flatter rather than yeah. more, more established. And a lot of, and this is not I'm, not, I'm not trying to pick on Sandler because this is a training and a management leadership challenge across the board. Uh, most programs that train leaders from, I was talking about it this morning with coaching, coaching models. All of, the, many of these coaching models are created in the West, most of them in the US, quite frankly, and they are created based on what people observe around them. What we've yeah, done absolutely. is we've done what I did, what my clients did, what Sandler, what everybody's done. We've thrown this to the other side of the planet and say, hey, this, this worked really well. So it'll obviously work really well here. Uh, and as I started delivering the training in, I was in the Middle East when it kind of, I had my aha moment and I was, I wasn't in Saudi Arabia. I was training these guys who were, whose market was Saudi and they were just interpreting one of the, the, the tools that I was training them on in a way that I, I had never heard before, nor would I ever recommend because that's <laughs> not the way I would do it. And if I did that in the U S or if I did that in Singapore, I'd never be invited back, but it works in Saudi Arabia because of these cultural differences, because of these style differences. So it was this moment where you go, you know, the framework, the framework works, but you've got to figure out ways to localize that in a way Absolutely. that is effective. And if you, if you force a standard approach, you're wasting your money. And that doesn't matter if it's sales training or management you, training. And Kyle, do you, do you think that things have, you know, changed at all, especially since the pandemic or even over the years, you know, specifically in Asia, you, know, you kind of touched on it a little bit about, you know, Saudi Arabia being different and having to kind of process it different, even when you're teaching Sandler, you know, to, to folks um, and kind of, you know, reimagining it, um, which I think is really cool. And that's exactly what you, have to do in these situations um and and you spoke a lot of about like great things like the hierarchy kind of 
delivery system, you know, especially in Japanese culture, um, I think is like a perfect example, you know, they're used to receiving information, you sitting there telling them, you know, Mm -hmm. and and that's how they're learning. They're, they're then not going to be questioning. They're going to more look at you as you're the authority on the subject because you're certified. So have you noticed in, especially during the pandemic and, and kind of my own curiosity is, you know, especially you being in Singapore, um, have you noticed a change? Is or do you think that it's even more moving towards that way of education and customization and and that kind of you know personalization? I look, I I, I think it's too soon to tell. Uh, in terms, of if if you're if you're asking about has there been a change in 2020? Um, if you think about it, I've been thinking a lot about it in terms of hierarchies because what COVID brought on was a forced. Um, remote work situation for everybody. And in a, when we talk about, let's define hierarchy. So we're talking about power distance and the the, cross-cultural phrasing is power distance and how individuals respond to power in different ways in terms of between individuals. Uh, A high power distance culture would be one that would, would accept their status being under or above somebody else. And it's, it's much more, uh, defined in, in a high hierarchy type of place. Mm-hmm. Well, the world was hit by COVID and everybody said, okay, go home and go work from home. The cultures, the company cultures that have a flat hierarchy, and this is mainly tech companies, they, they generally come from a flat hierarchy. An example could be, you know, we we don't have business cards or like everybody's everybody can walk in and say what they want. Right. Yeah. That's totally foreign in most other parts of the world. You just can't do it. Just not how things work. But all of a sudden everybody's now working from home, working remotely. Everybody's autonomous. The word autonomous is almost the opposite of hierarchy Uh, in a hierarchical organization. You wait to be told what to do from the boss, mm-hmm. but yeah. now all of a sudden you're on your own and everyone's saying, okay, work from home, get it done. Uh, and I think that the hierarchical companies, the hierarchical businesses are the ones that are struggling the most with, with this change. And they're realizing very quickly that the way they're used to do that stuff. So I, I, I think that, I think, I guess the long way of saying that is that I think COVID has rapidly flattened companies and the response to that is still being understood and interpreted but there are a lot yeah of companies- the, com- the, com- the companies that were actually like prepared to to handle this are the ones that seem to be you know the ones that were a bit flatter i think you're making a you know really good point yeah yeah so yeah. i think i know i i think that um and then i just another kind of question along those lines is you know has your growth strategy changed with your organization you know has there um you know, because and and that and the reason why I I love these questions or I love asking these questions is because there's so many different responses from so many different folks uh, from different industry verticals, um, especially. But you know, from a cultural uh, standpoint, um, especially being over in Asia, I think it's really interesting to kind of hear how that's going for you. I'm I'm kind of half smiling because um, my my biggest clients were in uh, airlines and hotels last year. 
So mm. my growth strategy certainly changed uh, <laughs> at the beginning of this year. But yeah. um, and I and the strategy for this year was the book was to get the book out, <laughs> and the entire marketing plan was you know I'm the global business nomad, so I'm going to fly around the planet and meet up face to face in yeah. large groups. And I'm going to talk about this stuff uh, to anybody who's willing to listen. And so obviously all of that got, got wiped out. Um, what also got wiped out was some of the supply chain. So it became difficult yeah. to get books to different organizations. Oh, okay. The book launch happened here in Singapore last week. Guess what? No books here. No books. I've got I've got 20 or so here, but that's those are the books that are in my hometown. And the launch was last week. Um, this is what we're up against. Right. So it's about yeah. trying to figure out how do we adapt to this? Where do I where do I zig and zag based on this? So, you know, you talk about a growth strategy. Um, growth is not probably the word that's on my radar at the moment. It is. Um, trying to figure out just <laughs> smart and re quite frankly, like reasonable ways to, to uh, adapt to working through these different obstacles and not go yeah. crazy at the whole thing. Uh, yeah. there, there's yeah. a weird answer. Without, 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 oh, yeah, without the overreaction. So yeah, it makes sense. No, it's yeah. uh, thank you. That's a very honest answer. Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, yeah. It's a, uh, with the pandemic and uh, how difficult it is, uh, especially in this industry, I suppose, and all the supply chains that you mentioned. Um, I just want to talk about the book a little bit, and uh, because the the title is uh, it's very intriguing. Uh, you you say it's a survival guide, so we can talk about you know survival, especially currently, you know, with the pandemic. Uh, so. Um, so I'm quoting the perfect book for anyone working in a cross-cultural setting, whether as part of a global team or independently establishing new business initiatives away from their home country. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the book and what can anyone expect from it? That's so, such an important topic, as you mentioned, to be able to, as an expert myself, you know, understand how to adapt, you know, in a different country. And that's not something that everybody gets right away. It takes years sometimes for businesses. And yeah. And so the book was conceived and written all before 2020. So this is all pre-pandemic. Um, a point I was trying to make at the beginning of the book, which turned out to be pretty prescient, was people are now working globally, whether they travel or not. Uh, I think the quote I had or the line was, you know, global nomads sometimes don't even have passports. And the reason is, is because so many of us are working dig in, a, in a digital environment. In some ways, this whole thing just got accelerated. Uh, so I, I don't think my argument and my thesis for any of this has changed. If anything, it's become more, more ap applicable here in 2020. The, what most people experience is when they move physically to another part of the world, they notice these these challenges, right? They start sensing that they're, that meeting didn't go the way I expected it or mm -hmm. something else. I'm just, I'm starting to see the, things are different. Mm -hmm. The challenge with doing this remotely is that you don't see all of that stuff. You don't see what happens when the video camera ends at the end of a Zoom call and the small chatter and the subgroups that happen. And so if you are managing a team in, a, in your own, from your own country, 
and your team is distributed in all these different parts of the world, mm -hmm. there's a lot of stuff, that invisible stuff that's going on that will take a lot longer for you to realize, at least the, realize the hard way. Yeah. And so what I'm trying to do here is say, okay, let me walk you through, let me walk you through some expat examples of what I'm trying to convey here. So how do you put definition to some of these invisible working style differences? If I can get people to have those aha moments without them having to make the same mistakes, that's fantastic. The survival guide is really to say, okay, there are a couple of key ideas that are, I want people to walk out of here with, which is what everybody I think should do as a starting point. It's, it's almost a very American approach to thinking about like, you know, what's the shortcut? What's, what's like gun to your head? Like what's the three things I need to know to work globally? And in some ways it's kind of a dumb question because it's not like going to ever really solve the problem. But if you did put a gun to my head and say, mm -hmm. what are the three yeah. things that people need to start doing? I would say they need to start better understanding themselves in terms of their working styles. Mm -hmm. And let's define some working styles. So, you know, how, how are you motivated? Uh, how do you communicate? We've mentioned this already. How do you build relationships? Mm -hmm. How do you deal with confrontation? How do you deal with time? All of these types of things. You've got to know how you sit on that spectrum. Actually, even taking a step back, you've got to realize that there are spectrums. I, I really, I actually really, uh, you know, and I, I, I listened, to, as I told you, to a podcast that you were on previously, and um, Catherine Busman, so I, I definitely give that nod um, there you go. Uh, to the worldly marker because she's fantastic. But um, yeah, I, I thought it was really, uh, something I thought was really interesting with all of that is, is that, you know, you, and it kind of reminded me of some things that you were talking about, but um, just kind of the things that you have to learn, you know, kind of what not, it's more like what not to do. I mean, I remember being on those, those airplanes and, you know, going to places where I knew that culture shock would take, take a hold and, and trying to brush up on making sure you don't make just etiquette mistakes, you know, or you don't right. insult someone by accident, you know? Um, yes. And I think that's kind of where I think it, what's really interesting about your book is I think that's kind of where everybody kind of starts. And then there's this kind of understanding as you're kind of going through and, and over the years and learning from the different cultures and, and learning, you know, what's taboo and what's not. And so, yeah, I think that's, it's really interesting for sure. The other part too is, is how to try and read those cues or the communication styles. And I'll give you a very recent, this happened last week. Uh, yeah. I'm very proud of myself for decoding this. I, I use this microphone for my, um, podcast that we're in and it's a very nice microphone and i was talking to i was doing um a small workshop it actually small coaching it was like like four people and and there was a guy from taiwan um and he was on the call first before the call started and so we were all kind of fiddling you know like you normally do on a zoom call and i got up um and he told me before anybody else showed up he's a very quiet guy, very friendly, very thoughtful. And he just said, um, he, did, he didn't see the microphone. He just said, you have, um, you have a very, you must have, a, you have a very good microphone. Oh, yeah, dude, that's Thank excellent you. that he picked, yeah, yeah. it's actually well, picked up on that. So, yeah. but, so, but see, so here's, here's where indirect communication kicks in. Right across the hallway from my office right here is my bathroom. 
Before things started, mm-hmm. I ran over, used the bathroom, and what he was very kindly telling me That's what he's saying. That this stuff is getting picked up. Oh, wow. That was how he was telling me this. Now, this is a perfect example of indirect Culture. communication. Yeah. Right? And this happens in places all. So this was somebody who was trying to help me by saying, you know, he was trying. But Politely, yeah. Culturally, it would be too rude or insensitive to Just say nice. something directly. Yeah. So he was doing his best effort to try and do that. And. I, quite frankly, you know, I, I, I thought initially he was just complimenting my microphone. And then after the call, I kind of sat back and just had a minute. It's like, there's, there's gotta be another reason he said that. And then it, then it all clicked. And so I, you know, there's your, there's your weird 2020 example of indirect communication and how to decode some of this stuff when you're doing virtual team building. Yeah. Fantastic example. I mean, that's just, um, it's, it's a great example to illustrate and especially in a professional relationship, the importance of, of uh, really uh, understanding how to adapt and work efficiently, you know, with people all around the world um, happens to all of us. Uh, so I suppose um, whether you, you, um, uh, you just moved to a different country or you work with uh, people around the planet. So um, thank you so much. Um, can you expand a little bit? I'd like to come back to your current role at TSL Marketing. Uh, can you expand a little bit about the specific type of services that you provide for uh, your clients and how you help them maybe? We, we started out here, as I had mentioned, saying we're going to do, we're going to be a marketing agency and what, and, and, and we're going to deliver global marketing campaigns. And that quickly became apparent that not only could we not deliver that the way we thought we could, but that's not actually what clients wanted anyway. Uh, for example, a big company would say, we had a success with you in the US, do that over in Asia. But then you talk to the local companies or the local teams from that same organization, and they don't want to be told what to do from US headquarters. So all of a sudden, you know, and, and I, you know, it's an organiz- it's a, it's a mar- uh, agency being run by a big white guy, right? Big American guy. No. Why would, we, why would we be told what to do from people on the other side of the planet? And then they're bringing, they're bringing these foreign guys in. It, it was a very difficult sell. Uh, and it was very difficult to make that work properly. What they wanted to do was to have more of a local solution. Fair enough. Um, we were able, to, I think, to adapt fairly well. So we, over the years, ended up hiring and, and developing our own local flavor and and delivery approach. Um, Southeast Asia is incredibly difficult to do that because of the language differences that I'm sure you you both know very well and the complications that arise simply from the the language piece, the the culture piece as well. You You can't just do a campaign and expand it from Singapore into Malaysia, into Thailand, into Vietnam, into China. There are so many moving pieces that each of them have to be looked at as almost a separate standalone campaign. Things don't scale the same way that some parts of the world are used to. So we wrestled with that. What I did over the years was um, we still do it to a degree, the marketing stuff, but more often I spend most of my time doing sales training and communications training and consulting with companies. So uh, the, the company has evolved all 
not 180 degrees, but we have turned in, we've gone from a marketing agency into more of a communications consulting agency, which focuses on sales, negotiation, and cross-cultural team building. And so it's been a, it's been a pretty big change from that standpoint, but we changed because that's what we saw the market opportunity pointing us towards. And if we had forced the standard approach that we had come in here thinking wouldn't have, wouldn't have worked. I mean, it, it would have been okay, but it, it wouldn't have been very fulfilling. Yeah, no, obviously you understand. Sorry, go ahead, Michael. No, I just said kind of a, you know, that that's like, I'm, I'm again, exhibit a of, of a localization play. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I didn't, we didn't come in here with this amazing, brilliant, you know, strategy. It just, we, we kind of flubbed our way through it and figured it out, but it's. No, I, I think, I think, I think the, I, I think the education there is, is perfect for, for explaining that to folks that you can't just sit there. And I think we get that a lot in, in at VistaTech where clients think that they just translate it, you know, throw it over the fence to us and then the magic happens. Right. Um, so, so we totally, uh, we, I think we can completely um, relate with that. Uh, <laughs> right. Right. Facilia. So, so yeah, no, I think that um, uh, makes, makes a lot of sense. I, I wanted to ask, you know, um, back a little bit, I know we keep kind of bouncing around a little bit between, you know, your company and also the book. Um, and I know you commented about the word foreign and, and, and how, uh, and, and I guess what I'm wondering is in the rapid kind of digital kind of first, uh, age that we're in here right now, especially with, um, all of this, uh, and the widespread, you know, with the widespread kind of chat platforms, um, like zoom and MS teams and that kind of thing. Um, are, do you, do you kind of, are you feeling kind of any, um, is there, are you feeling like an urgency with the change business landscape? Are you sensing that from, from a cultural standpoint being in, in Singapore? Um, and then, you know, what are the, I know this is kind of, uh, kind of a weird question too, is, uh, how are you quickly getting people trained, um, trained up for work, for global like work environments? Because, you know, for cross-cultural kinds of situa situations, I'm also very curious, like, you know, have you received feedback about the collaborations and the things that come out of all of that? Because I know you and I have talked about that a little bit before, like cross-cultural collaboration. I've had a lot of really good experiences with that. Um, how have you felt that's all kind of, and I know that's kind of like a three there's like three. Question. There's like three or four questions yeah, there. Yeah. So, I'll, um, so yes, I'll I apologize through. for that. No, that's okay. Um, the... What I'm getting is some companies come to me and they go, right, we are now just all like, we're all, nobody's talking to one another. Um, the, the offices in different parts of the world have siloed up and it's us versus them. And London is saying that Singapore doesn't get anything done. And Singapore is saying, oh, London just sends us all their stuff because they're not willing to be on a call after five. And the France office is saying that it's illegal for anybody to respond to an email after six o'clock. And it's, you know, like, and so the inability to meet up, uh, the inability to actually sort some of this stuff up, what people are trying to do is they're trying to fix problems via email, right? And I don't know about you, but I don't, if, if you've ever Management seen- by email, a, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you've ever seen a, a problem escalate via email, which we all have seen, can you name one time where it was actually resolved properly via email? 
It's not. It, it always escalates being like, all right, let's get on a call. Let's get on a Zoom call. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that right now is the best we've got, which is this type of, of video environment. The yeah. work that I'm trying to do is to hopefully preempt that stuff, to get teams across these different places to sit down. And, and I, I use this data that I've alluded to earlier, which is to say, look, there's cross-cultural data out here that it doesn't answer all the questions, but it's a great starting point to start defining what some of these potential work differences might even look like. When we talk about the difference between communication styles, when we talk about the difference between, like, like the, the silly bathroom ex ex example. Well, you, you can see, you could kind of fast forward that in a, in a work in a big company or any company environment where someone goes, you know what? That guy just pisses me off because he doesn't speak up. He doesn't say what is really on his mind. I have to sit here and decode everything. Like, I'm not, I'm not working with him anymore. And this other guy no. could be thinking the exact opposite. So what, what I'm seeing is the, the, the stress of everyday life of, of remote work, I think, is starting to build. So I'm getting these kind of calls. And quite frankly, it's not strategic. It, it's, it's more um, putting out fires. Just fine. Yeah. We can we can work on that as a starting point, but hopefully people are realizing in this whatever this new whatever this is, uh, there needs to be a more thoughtful approach to remote work. Some people are going back to offices. Mm -hmm. That's going to create other problems as well because not everybody's going back. So yeah. now we've got this hybrid thing that's popping up. And you're going to get silos from that. You're going to get the people that are in the office versus the remote workers happening. Uh, mm -hmm. And I'm trying to work with different companies on different strategies for that. Uh, the second question you asked is, again, I think goes back to that kind of speed answer, which is I, I put together over the, only over the last couple of months, I, I took five main, main tools that I think are the most important things from the survival guide, the survival kit that I talked about um, from the book. And it's a, it's a virtual workshop that individuals can join on. And that's been going really well. That's fun because we do a deep dive for an hour and we meet once a week. And uh, at the end of that five-week program, you've got a little bit of a deep dive survival kit is to say, okay, here are the communication tools. Here's how I can think about myself. Here's how I can understand the data that I've alluded to. And then here are some specific ways that we can start building communication in a stronger way within teams. That's so that seems to have been, uh, uh, it's starting to pick up pretty well at an individual level. Mm -hmm. Do you, and with like multinationals specifically, do you think that they are starting to get these things right? Or do you still think that there's a lot of, especially some of the larger ones, you know, I, I've seen obviously like different uh, maturity levels when it comes yeah. to, you know, global environments and things and, and, you know, multicultural teams. Um, do you think they're starting to get more sensitive to those things? And, and um, or do you think that those things are, and, and if they are still getting it wrong, why do you think they're still getting it wrong? <laughs> My knee jerk reaction is no, they're not doing anything different. Um, but that's not fair. I, I think that there are, I think that I, I haven't seen large companies as a whole who have just cracked the code and figured this out. I've seen individual leaders and teams who have become bulletproof or, you know, like they, like they've really developed a tight knit communication style and building trust, uh, within each with among each other 
And so I've seen that, which I think is fantastic. Yeah. Is it getting better? I, again, like 2020 mm -hmm. is just such a weird, I, I, I have no idea what the trend line is looking like. I have generally in the last 15 years been surprised at the fact that the conversations, that the problems of cross-cultural teams have been exactly the same. So uh, I have not seen a general improvement in that. And I think what you asked as a follow-up was why, if that's the case, a lot of times these issues are brushed under the carpet. And I think it's because people don't want to talk about these types of failures. I think that this topic is tricky. You can very yeah. quickly get into the realm of stereotyping and negative generalizations if you're not careful yeah. about it. Uh, it's very easy for these things to turn into rants and pointing fingers. Oh, well, these people are always like this and these people do this. Like we have to be real careful with that. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of times companies have just been hands off about it. Um, it's been easy to be hands off about it when the markets are going up, when you're growing, when your stocks yeah. are going up. Uh, now, as we're, I think, heading into some darker, stormier times, I'd have now to is where those issues that have been pushed under the rug, I think these are going to start rearing their head. Companies can't get away with the kind of shenanigans that they could get away with if you've got a growth market that's going crazy and yeah, we're dysfunctional, but we're still growing. So who cares? How do you get them out of that mind? How are you getting them out of that mindset? I guess I'm not. the market is I'm not <laughs> okay. getting them out of the mindset. Yeah. I, only I get, I get the phone call after, after the fear comes in, quite frankly. I mean, I, I can, you know, I can, there, there are some people that, that get it and they know that this is something that they need to do. Generally though, um, the, the call comes in after the problems start, which uh, that, that's just, that's how life works. I mean, I, I, I wish I could tell you otherwise, but um, the, I think that, when, when the, I, I think we're heading towards some really difficult economic times in the next year or so. Uh, I, I think I, I hopefully I'm wrong, but I hope you're I hope you're wrong, but I kind of happen to agree with you. But yes, go on. And, and I think that what what'll happen is that there need to be some strategic decisions as to what these companies are going to do from a global perspective. The growth markets were very sexy and fun if they're growing. If they're yeah. not growing all of a sudden people stop thinking about the growth statistic and start looking at the out the spending, right? How much, yeah. like there's a, there's a lot of people that were growing like crazy, but also losing money like crazy. And they were getting away with it because it was all about the growth. But if the growth yeah. stops and the money keeps coming out, some very big decisions have to be made. And if you've got a dysfunctional team, that's going to make that even more difficult because the mistake that happened back in the last downturn, 2008, 2009, 2010, was a yeah. lot of, in this case, Western companies, they just closed shop in Southeast Asia or they just brought it down to like a, just a surviving heartbeat. And they pissed off a lot of people because they didn't do it very well. You know, they just mm -hmm. immediately laid off people. They treated people poorly. They didn't follow up with vendors, partners. Um, so, you know, companies have to be very careful about their short-term behavior because that comes back to bite them. Because what they come back to is markets where there are local competitors here that are stronger than ever before. So yeah, the world is changing. 
Yeah, I, 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 I agree with you, Kyle. I, I'm, I'm just curious, like, do you, do you think that there's, um, in those particular situations with these multinationals, are you seeing, you know, because one of the things we're seeing a lot right now is, is stuff having to do with user experience, customer experience, and there's a focus on that to a degree, things being more inclusive, accessible, uh, personalized, which, which I all think is fantastic progress you know, as, as, uh, in global business, especially since it's being embraced, like it's being, but I'm curious, like, you know, you're taught basic economics is when things are kind of heading in a downturn, you're supposed to kind of invest then because it's, that's when your competitors, you know, maybe are taking a much more conservative approach. Yep. Um, just curious, you know, just, you know, again, is, is, are you seeing more investment in things that are a little bit more outside the box? Do you feel like people are more apt to be more open with things or are they being more open with things because they've been forced to, to be, especially with, with, with the pandemic not being over and, and kind of the aftermath or the eventual aftermath? I, there, there's, um, it's, I wish you, I, I can, I can give you another answer in a couple of days. I'm meeting up with a couple <laughs> guys tomorrow who are, um, they're, they're investors in, in markets like Vietnam and Indonesia and I'm very curious to see what they've got going on because I know that they've got money that they're trying to invest. The problem yeah. that they've got is they can't get there. They need to physically see this stuff and kick the tires because they, this has been slowing them down. Um, and so in the, in the very short term, things are slowing down because they physically can't move around and, and check stuff out. But there's money there. And there are a lot of people that are thinking the same way that you just framed that, which is, you know, we get the fact that downturn means go time. Yeah. Uh, downturn means that the talent pool has just increased. Yeah. COVID means that the talent pool not, didn't, not only has increased because of the downturn, but it's multiplied more than ever before because now we're working remotely. And yeah. it doesn't matter if I'm next door to you, Michael, or if I'm on the other side of the planet. Yeah. Uh, if I'm the talent that you're looking for, now we can work together a hell of a lot easier than we could even a year ago. And so I keep saying it to like HR people, you know, your, your resume pools probably are going to go up by about a billion. <laughs> yeah. So there's some, yeah, there's, there's, I, I think we're at the yeah, beginning of some too, massive Too many change. people available, unfortunately. I'm sorry, say that again. Sorry. I said too many people available, unfortunately. No question. In the short term, yeah. like, this stuff is ugly. Uh, this, this is going, and it, who knows where it's going to go, but this is um, a time of massive disruption, but also, you know, uh, you've, you've got to kind of look at, I, I kind of also joke, I say, you know, we're all going to be, hopefully we're on a call in six months or 12 months where someone's figured out a model that's just so amazing. And they've built a company from nothing into multiple thousands of employees. And you and I are, you know, all three of us are going like, oh, like what? it was. You're like, why? Have, why? Yeah, totally, absolutely. Yeah. That makes, but that I love makes that stuff. I, I think it's great. You know, that, that gives me, that gives me hope and enthusiasm for where the stuff's going. Yeah. Innovation comes from, from crisis. Right. So, and, so and I think put it, putting the, you know, the word innovation is so important. Cause like you put that into a cultural cross-cultural perspective, because what I've seen, if you don't have communication across your different uh, offices, if you're missing those cues, you're missing opportunities. And I'll give you an example. 
Not that you asked, but I'll give you one anyway. Um, <laughs> a client of mine in India is in the uh, job portal space, right? Yep. And it's a US-based company. And the market, as you know, in India is incredibly different than in the US. In fact, it's so different that it's not even a market. Like there's multiple markets within India. There's a new yep. phrase going on. It's called internal globalization, which they're trying to push in India, which is like, hey guys, why don't we figure out how to work with each, with each other because we're such a diverse country. <laughs> and yeah. so like India is a complicated, crazy place. What they were finding in one sub-market of India was that there were massive layoffs happening because of AI. And this was happening in the financial uh, insurance industries. And, you know, India layoffs are different than U.S. Or, or European layoffs. They don't do layoffs in hundreds. They do layoffs in thousands or tens of thousands, just as they do right. hiring in tens of thousands. So they were getting companies who were saying, look, we're about to lay off 10,000 people. Can you help them? And this particular company was saying, no, we don't, we don't do that. It's just not like nobody in the boardroom back in the United States was sitting around on their whiteboard in their big fancy boardroom going, oh, like what, what solution would we have if this happened? Like, that's not how they think, which is fair yeah. enough. But on the other side of the planet, a problem was happening that they would never have been able to predict. One of two things can happen. One, the local India team just says no, hangs up the phone, nothing happens. Opportunity completely missed. Or two, do you have a company culture where that type of thing can get communicated? Do you have trust and the ability for some person who's been on that call with a client to speak up to somebody else? Do they have the guts to speak up to headquarters? Does headquarters have the open-mindedness to hear it, to actually mm. hear it and to yeah. do something about it? And in this case, thankfully, that all worked where somebody back in the U.S. said, good Lord, this sounds like, you know, obviously it's awful, but maybe we can help these people. Maybe there's a product where we can help people in the tens of thousands figure out sure. what they're going to do next. We had never thought of that. This is a new product offering based on a local challenge that has just popped up. But I will tell you, nine times out of 10, those local problems that pop up do not get communicated back to headquarters. And if they do, headquarters ignores it. So that's, that's where the opportunities, I think, are, um, are massively happening, you know, in, in companies of all sizes right now. Tell, tell us more just about your experience working overseas and the challenges of organizations accepting a global mindset. Um, you know, when you're located, you know, as an American in Asia, you know, the, and then and then they happen to be in North America or Europe trying to better understand that like Asia based markets. How how is I guess um, it's a little bit I, I'm curious just from the book sense. You know, um, and we've talked a little bit about that, how you're, you're getting people to adopt a global mindset. I, I'm a believer in, um, and, you, and the, the book is not a business book. I mean, if you've taken the time to get, if you've got into it, like it, it's a narrative, right? It's just, a, it's a story driven thing. And then there's some, some data and hopefully some ideas that come out of it, not the opposite. So it's not like, here's the idea and here's, here's a mini example that I just made up. It's, it's kind of, I flipped it on this one. Um, I'm a very big believer in communicating via story rather than 
just facts and figures. So to me, the big way to drive global mindset is to figure out that formula where I, 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 the way I say it is that persuasion happens when a good story meets great data. Yeah. What I mean by that is you need to have both. If you're going to get people to, re, if you're going to change minds, uh, you can't go back to headquarters and say, you don't understand Asia is different. You don't understand the Irish market is different than this. And like you, you people don't understand. Most of us are guilty of kind of that, you know, finger wagging and bit complaining about it. Whereas what we need to do instead is to say, okay, let me give you this quick example of what I've just seen. Uh, here, let, let's use that India example that I just told you. So that, that was a story of one company that experienced that. Now, what if I were to add the fact that in the last 12 months, 200,000 people have been laid off due to AI changes in Bangalore alone? I just made that number up. But if you had like real data that said, okay, here's an example of innovation. Here's the data that backs up the change that's actually happening. Here's the idea. So in other words, can you put that into some type of formula so that people can be able to tell stories in a more calibrated type of way? Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the most powerful tools that I try and coach people on. I call it calibrated storytelling. It's just combining that story like element that. With, with, with hard factual data. Yeah, no, I, th I think that's, I think that's really, uh, that's really interesting. I know in your book, you mentioned uh, communication contracts. Could, could you tell us just a little bit more about communication contracts? Commun communication contracts are, are a, a, it's a big picture idea uh, because the way people can execute on it can have massive variation to it. Essentially, the idea is it's having an adult to an adult honest conversation with your team hopefully at the beginning of a relationship, but it can be happen at any time um, to lay core ground rules for what, what's going to be expected, what's going to be tolerated, what's going to happen if those agreements are broken. Uh, I've been using those a lot with teams that ran that, that, that quickly went to AB test or AB phase, meaning like, okay, we can have five people come in from, on this week and then another five come in next week and they've never done that before. So this split teaming had uh, challenges. So it was like, okay, we need to write a communication contract for this team that establishes what are the new ground rules here? How are we going to agree on what communication style is going to work? Mm -hmm. What technology platforms are we going to use? Uh, mm -hmm. So many companies started throwing all of these different things, right? Are we on Zoom today? Should be on WhatsApp? Is it Skype? Are we on Microsoft today? How I, I sent you a text. Did, why didn't you respond to that? Like, well, mm -hmm. because I wasn't on the chat tool, right? Like all, all of this stuff can cause headaches. So I believe yeah. it's up to small teams to just say, okay, look, let's, let's just come up with an agreement as to what this is going to be about. If you have time zones, let's agree to what that time zone situation looks like. Can we agree that if you get a response from me and it's 2 a.m. your time, nobody's going to be upset uh, if you don't respond <laughs> until they respond. Yeah. And we also yeah. agree that if we, knowing that time zones are here, uh, that can we be a little bit more proactive about what our recommended next step is? 
for example, I'm playing back and forth with the, with somebody in New York right uh, this week, and I gave three times for uh, to, to to have a conversation. And she wrote back. She goes, "Yeah, that that time's not good for me." Okay, so, but but, but like if you're having a conversation, and you are in one state or one part of the world. That's okay yeah. because it's back and forth, right? But she's sending that note to me and it's 10 o'clock and I'm not responding until the next day. So what would normally turn into a two minute, five minute back and forth, now we're talking about 24 hours. And so it's, it's almost literally those little types of changes to how we communicate can yeah, make a massive difference. Yeah, we know something a little bit about that. And I think what's interesting in that situation as you kind of talked about it, just from a cultural standpoint, you know, um, obviously, you know, I worked for a China-based organization for a long time and uh, their hours, you know, were were crazy hours and they were always happy because I was kind of, you know, night kind of person and they were like, yeah. do you ever sleep? And so they were like very happy that I was like that, not really realizing that most, you know, Americans are not going to be like that. And then you, and then of course, Priscilla, you you could attest this, you know, Europe is even more so where it's very strict. Everybody's very balanced. It's not very strict. It's more strict in terms of time, in terms of, yes. you know, work time balance with life, you know, a work-life balance. Um, so I, I think that, you know, what you're touching on is, is really kind of funny um, and, uh, you know, uh, very interesting, you know, in, in that sense as well. I know this is kind of like a, um, an offbeat question a little bit, but, you know, uh, my experience with Asia and just kind of seeing how things kind of progress or have changed over the past decade plus, you know, do you get the sense, and I was listening to a, um, a, another podcast and there was, there was this uh, gentleman on the podcast who, who was uh, spe speaking specifically about China um, and he was talking about how there's like these waves of, of change that have gone on over the past decade in China in terms of their openness. Uh, as far as, you know, what do they need expats for, right, in those types of situations or, or Americans like myself back in the day to be located in the U.S. to help them, um, you know, grow business here. Do you sense that too, that there's been this change? And do you think that those, mar are those markets uh, any different working in Singapore, you know, going into China versus now, you know, some of the other emerging markets like Vietnam um, and Indonesia and some of the others? The, the waves analogy is absolutely fitting and, and I think correct. I, I think about it as a pendulum, same thing. So what happens is, uh, I don't know if it's nationalism or protectionism, but there, there yeah. are moments or eras where all of a sudden, you know, we need to bring it, we need to hire locals and the locals need to be taking over because this has gone too far. We've got, in Singapore is exhibit A of this. In fact, there is daily headlines right now. Uh, the Ministry of Employment, Ministry of Manpower uh, is going after foreign companies if they don't hire and promote enough locals. And mm -hmm. so what they're doing is they're now starting to name and shame organizations that aren't mm. to their, you know, whatever, you know, sure. doing that. They're, they're calling it discriminatory hiring practices. And the message is, is that they are stopping foreign work pass holders from coming in and they're actually starting to cancel them. So what's happened this year is that people are leaving 
And so that's from a, from a wave standpoint, that's the direction we're heading in. We're heading in a uh, local higher standpoint. This is not the first wave. This is not the first pendulum swing. Uh, yeah. You know, your, your phrase of 10 years. Yeah, that was one of them. Uh, when I was here or before I got here talking to the old grizzled expats before I got here, they were telling the same story <laughs> the from, yeah. from the nineties. And I'm sure the story from the eighties was the same. This is not, um, this is, I don't think this is anything new. I do think it seems to vary from country to country. I know that the same thing's happening in Thailand right now. So there is a, uh, it's not an anti-foreigner sentiment, but it's definitely a, you know, Thailand first, uh, Singapore yeah. first, China first, India first, America first. Is that, is that a thing? Uh, <laughs> I, I knew that, I knew that one was coming. So yeah, and, 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 and that, that, it's interesting, you know, because of the fact that it's being in global business, it's kind of like, you know, you see this kind of stuff going on and you're just kind of like, um, you don't really kind of understand the national, I mean, you do and you don't, you understand where it's coming from yeah. at the same time. It, to me, it's, it, it, it should be the opposite now that things are more digitized. So the, um, the prime minister little... there had a, he had a, and I wish I, I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing what he said a couple of weeks ago. He, he said, you know, over the last decade, this has been about figuring out how to grow the global pie. He said, now that growth has stopped and countries are figuring out how they can grab the pieces of pie without thinking about how to work together to grow it. And yeah. we need to be aware- Not very forward thinking. Yeah, What's yeah go ahead. I said, it's what not very forward thinking. No, no he, he wasn't. He wasn't saying it as a like. This is what we, you know. We, we, he he was. I, what his point was was we need to not be naive to the fact that globalization, from a traditional standpoint, the what we've been used to in the last ten years, this has changed. And <laughs> if you think that you know it's all about, if if you think it's business as usual beforehand, it's not. And as a small little country. I almost said company, but there's yeah. kind of a Freudian slip there. Um, they need to be very cautious and aware of, of, of that change, of the fact that supply chains are coming back, not necessarily domestically, but certainly regionally. And so his point wasn't gloom and doom. I, I thought he hit a good balanced tone, which was to say, you know, we need to figure out how to get back to that growth mindset as quickly as we can. But we also have to be aware that the, the tone of global business has shifted. And so that's maybe where that wave analogy is a good one because it's like, you can't, you're not gonna control the tides. The best thing you can do is to figure out how to ride them. Yeah, no, I mean, that, uh, that makes complete, uh, complete sense. Do you think that's created more opportunities for emerging markets in Vietnam, Indonesia, Taiwan? The, the China-specific situation has. Um, China is kind of its own unique beast, which is a different conversation. And, and, and quite frankly, one that I'm not qualified to, to have. Yeah. I'm sure you've got contacts that are your China experts. Um, the, what, I, what I am seeing, though, is certainly an increased focus on those other markets that you've named. And again, I'm, I'm interested to have my, uh, my meetup with my friends uh, who are focused. Well, we'll have to splice that, we'll have to splice that in Absolutely. Here. <laughs> the, uh, up, the, updated the, version, right? Vietnam is really the one that's going 
crazy right now in terms of um, opportunities. Yeah, no, it's, it's very interesting. Yeah. And uh, speaking of um, taking business, um, uh, keeping business um, locally, but also expanding globally, um, you mentioned uh, uh, in your book that organizations around the world have gone global. Uh, but the big problem that we, we've got is that people haven't. And uh, if you're not going into domestic marketing more, you're working globally. So do you have any tips for individual organizations who are looking to adapt to a global working environment? I think it goes back to what we talked about. Yeah, I think I think it goes back to what we talked about earlier, which is that survival guide, which is, you know, the first thing you've got to do is is get a better sense in terms of where you sit on all of these spectrums. Uh, and, and actually even going back a, a step further, which is people have to be willing to acknowledge that there are other working styles out there and that those other working styles work. And that's like that's actually yeah. a really important point. Um, I had a meeting, I, I just signed on, a, a, I'm doing a coaching project with somebody and we did sort of a first date, like we needed to figure out if it was gonna make sense to, to work together. And the one thing I was interested in was, does this person think, and is, is this person convinced that his way is the right way? Because if that's the case, I can't help him. Right. That's fair point. And, and thankfully, you know, he was the first, he was gone, look, like I have my opinions and I've seen things that work, but I've also realized like uh, there's stuff going on that I don't understand. <laughs> like I, I'm, I need help. Like I'm, I'm willing to acknowledge that um, the, there's more than one way to get from point A to point B. And maybe that's even the first thing, which is that like you, your way might be the right way, but it's not the only way. And right. if, if you're not willing to consider that, stay stay where you are and don't don't look overseas because it's not. It's a, be it's, a, it's a good it's a good qualifi qualifying question. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's great. Yeah. It's true. Yeah, from that perspective, yeah, it's a great uh, qualifying um, question. And uh, and uh, yeah, Michael, did you have a, did you want to ask a question regarding? Um, 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 uh, Kyle's uh, Kyle's recent podcast with Catherine Bassman. Yeah, I know. Oh, I know what you're you're speaking about specifically. Um, yeah, I mean, and obviously we could probably talk about a lot of this, um, you know, all day long. But um, meeting I, with with Kyle because I think it's just interesting hearing these different perspectives and just all the things and changes that are going on. Uh, you know, so I, I definitely like that. And, and the book, you know, and the idea behind the book, I think is fantastic. One of the things I thought was really funny from that podcast is, and maybe you could just, because I think it's always kind of great to, to tell these um, types of stories, is that you mentioned um, during that podcast, like the, or with Catherine's podcast, it was uh, about this story with these, you know, slapping dragons on a marketing pieces, you know, um, specifically for for Asian markets. And that was kind of like the, the thought process to, to replace, you know, baseball uh, in, in kind of a marketing um, campaign. And so I guess, do you have, you know, any funny, tragic or kind of expensive mistakes or, or any little, uh, I love those types of stories just because I think they're interesting to hear because we get to learn from, from bad, so I, bad decisions. 
I, I always like adding new I, new stuff to these conversations, and I don't like telling stories from the book because when you know, I always get frustrated when an author tells all the same stories, and then I buy the book, <laughs> and then it's the same stuff I've just heard. So I, yeah. I, I've tried to I've tried to kind of keep it outside. Um, yeah, I'm a I'm a working case study right now. I this book process has been interesting because it's it's had a very uh, we've wrestled with the global rollout for this whole thing. Um, the book, small thing, which is interesting when a book goes live. So this is a, it's a kind of a U.S. centric starting point where the book was published when it goes live overseas. So we were celebrating our launch back in, I think, August 27th of the international launch. Well, it doesn't go live until West Coast U.S. time, noon, which is actually not even like the 27th. So right. the book launch, you couldn't like you couldn't get the ebook, you couldn't get the audio book the day it launched because it was basing itself off of the U.S. time zone. Yeah, and that was some. So they had like, the wrong day. Yeah. So it was, it was kind of like wow you know like here here we are we're still getting that stuff wrong um the audiobook is narrated by a professional it sounds great he's he's really good but the book has a lot of characters from different parts of the world and the audiobook trend now is that they do accents mm -hmm. and so you've got this guy who is doing accents and <laughs> for those for those characters for all of those characters. So you've got <laughs> different different dialects across the US, fine. Then you've got British. I don't think there's any Irish characters. You've got Dutch. You've got uh, Singa Singaporean, <laughs> what is, what is Filipino, Chinese, uh, Australian. And this guy, um, he goes for it. And it's pretty entertaining. <laughs> he goes <laughs> for it. <laughs> That's funny. I think that that'll, yeah. So like, you know, here we are talking about awareness and differences and I'm, I'm not sure how that's going to go down. I, I hey, it's to, better, I, it's I, better I, than machine voice because we've seen no that question, for, no in question. courses. I, so, and other things I, in I, audio I got, books and stuff. Yeah. I, I went out and went for a run and listened to it. And uh, I was a little bit, questioning it and now i'm i'm just kind of owning it so i'm just going to go for it but um but see so, now we're now we're full circle kyle it's we're back to you know um it, it's it, the cultural kind of it, the worries about insensitivity right or the stereotypes that go along with it yes. so i think yep. it's kind of i think it's kind of funny in the book i'll have to listen to the audio because i i can't wait to hear this guy's different accents Ab absolutely you you uh, being someone from you know experiencing uh, so many different accents, uh, both of you, I think you'll um, certainly put a smile to your face. <laughs> um, oh, I was gonna say, you know, one thing I, I think that would be very interesting, you know, in the future is some kind of workshop, uh, maybe exam like how, especially in, in what we uh, do with Vistatech, a workshop that's specifically about how, um, you know, you go into these multi multinationals, like an example of one of these workshops, I think would be kind of, kind of interesting in the future, just to kind of see, um, you know, what kind of goes on uh, internally within organizations to train them up for, for global business. Well, I'll um, tell you so what's I think been, that'd be interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, and, and I'll tell you what, what's been, actually, I'm, I'm doing this now with a university out of the U.S., and um, we'll, we'll definitely roll this out to, to organizations as well. We're taking the characters from the book, and we're building case studies off of those as working examples that will help people. So, for example, there's a deep dive character study on a, on a woman who goes over from the U.S. and st- sets up her own business, or, or, or she, she opens an office in Singapore, and what she goes through, but not only uh, from the logistics side of things, but from a hiring and managing side of things, and with some of the challenges that we talked about. So then we go, okay, read this chapter, and now let's talk about what would you advise her if this was day one when she was coming in, what would you advise her after the first year after she has got rid of, she's fired two people. What's your, what, what's your advice to her? What's, what should the company think about doing after year two, when she's decided she's going back to the States, who's going to replace her? What are the characteristics? That you, so, so anyway, and you can, you can go into just, there's, 20 questions that you can have teams go out. And so what we're doing, it's really cool, actually. They're, they're, I'm using Zoom and some other uh, platforms to have these uh, uh, team-based learning exercises where they've got to go and really work through some of these questions that are uh, absolutely applicable to organizations and teams. And it's nice because it's safe, right? It's like, we're not talking about you, company X. We're talking about this hypothetical that just happens to be very aligned to the challenges that you're facing. Let's practice. Let's role play this through in a, in a safe environment and just put ideas out so that when we come back and we've got now we know now we can think differently about how we're going to actually strategically decide on what our next step is going to be. So I'm, a, I'm happy to you know talk about that as, at another point. But those. Um, deep dive case studies are, uh, are really where we're taking this book, which I'm really excited about. That's awesome. Yeah, it's really exciting. Yeah. Definitely very useful to anyone. Um, always helps you relate to um, any situation. So, um, well, my last question to you really is, is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience today? Uh, any other project that you'd be working on the side? Anything specific, anything related to the book and the recent launch? Um, so yeah, there's there's the a couple of workshops that I'm doing, both public and corporate. So people, individuals can jump on to these um, these workshops. Super simple. I, I've got three of them based on APAC timing, uh, European timing, and American uh, or you know uh, yeah North America timing, uh, <laughs> yeah. which covers those five some of those five key things. If there are five things I want people to to take away in terms of building global leadership skills, in terms of communication, this is the fast and easy way to do it. That's been working out really well. And then we do a corporate version of that. Uh, I've, as I just said, we've had tons of uh, success and positive feedback on doing deep dive case study work on mm-hmm. some of the characters from the book. And that's been getting really good feedback. My website, Leadership Nomad, is the best place to find me. So leadershipnomad.com. Obviously, the book is the book. It's out everywhere, uh, hopefully everywhere. And um, yeah. No, that's, I've been reading fun. your reviews on Amazon. It's out everywhere. <laughs> out everywhere. Everywhere. Yes. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Kyle. And thanks, Michael. Um, thank you, Kyle. Uh, thank no, it was a pleasure to have you today. Thank you for, for your time. We appreciate, uh, especially uh, you being in Singapore, Michael being uh, in the United States, me being in Ireland. It's a, a real uh, 
uh, we couldn't make it more global, I think, uh, time zone wise. We, so we it's took been care of that time zone problem. Yeah, we got, we, yeah, got we made it work. We made it work. So thank you so much. Uh, so um, it is already uh, the end of today's show, unfortunately, with Carl Hegarty, uh, Managing Director at TSL Marketing and author of The Accidental Business Nomad, A Survival Guide for Working Across a Shrinking Planet, and our very own uh, Vistatech, uh, Michael J. Arthquith. So um, please make sure to tune in again to uh, see and or listen to the next Vista Talk show with more interesting people uh, and interesting discussion from all around the world. Thank you.